0: On Message is a podcast from MHP Communications.
1: Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the On Message podcast. I'm Ian Kirby, head of MHP's Strategic Media Unit. We brought together a panel of some of the UK's leading journalists to ask them the news that they're looking forward to in a year where the agenda may inevitably be dominated by Brexit, but hopefully there'll be much more beside. Here are the highlights from the discussion. And joining me on the panel were Pippa Crera, the political editor of the Daily Mirror, formerly of The Guardian and The Evening Standard. Simon Jack, business editor of BBC News and a familiar face and voice to millions of viewers and listeners. Tanith Carey, an author and journalist who frequently writes for the Daily Mail and Telegraph and who is also the author of several books about parenting. And finally, we were joined by Ian Martin, Times columnist. Sometime editor of The Scotsman, Scotland on Sunday, and currently the founder, publisher and chief executive of Reaction, the news website. Now recently on the site, he wrote, if readers want quality, then they have to pay. And I began by asking Ian what that meant. People will
0: pay for magazines, they'll pay for The Times, they'll pay for The Telegraph, for the FT. But what happens to the, the mass market, to the popular market? And that's, I think, going to be a, a really big unresolved question. But um, someone at some point is going to have to resolve it. What happens to the sun, to uh, the mail? <coughs> mail online is, uh, generates a lot of revenue, but it doesn't generate much in the, way of, uh, in the way of profit. The other big trend, I would say, is obviously it's not new, but it's, it seems to be accelerating. So the move to mobile and how that's imp- impacting not just on in terms of <laughs> news media, but imp- impacting on TV watching. You can see, I mean, I think it was as recently as 2012, you had about 80% of TV consumption was conventionally through TV or, uh, or early catch-up. And it's now, I think, last year for the first time, it passed <coughs> below, below 60%. So mm-hmm. the
1: switch to mobile is continuing. So that race for, for mass market that the mail online on are doing, my, Stat about the Mail Online is that the profits made by the Mail Online website, the biggest news website in the world, are about the same as a large Tesco Extra. So if you put that in context, that's how much how much profit they make. Yeah. And the Guardian are the same. We often feel, I mean, Pippa, I don't know your experience being there, it's that feeling of a great stately house where they're hoping that they can sell enough furniture before they have to sell the house. Is that? Does it sometimes feel like that in the kind of in in that sort of model where you're going for a mass market without the revenue?
2: Well, I mean, The Guardian obviously was in a slightly different position from pretty much any other UK newspaper in that uh, they're owned by a trust rather than a proprietor who's prepared to inject lots of their own money or a PLC and so there was never really the sort of push to, in the past, to make the books balance. Um, that's obviously changed in the last few years as the Guardian's faced up to the realities that everybody's had to. And they have gone for a slightly different model, obviously, with the, uh, it's not quite a subscription, but it's like a membership model where they ask people to pay, I think it's £12 a month. Or uh, you'll have seen if you read The Guardian online, at the bottom of articles, they'll ask for a Effectively a donation to support The Guardian's journalism. And because it has a very sort of trusted brand, because it's international, its readers often buy it because of the quality of the journalism and therefore prepared to contribute to that continuing. And I was never privy to the, the books of The Guardian, but they were gradually, each year, reducing the amount that it was in the red um, by 20 million quid each year. And it had planned this year to break even. I think the big question for the money men is what happens next after that. Uh, whether it's a short-term it's tightening or whether it's actually something broader.
1: So I think it's now 50 years since Rupert Murdoch bought The Sun. Is that a brand that's not as ubiquitous and as powerful as it used to be? I'll start with you, Simon, actually.
3: Well, I, you know, I, I, I know about business, but every business apart from the business of media, that's how I'm and <laughs> you've got the wrong person. Um, but... Um, uh, I think politically it's certainly not the power that it, that it once yeah. was. It still has that, and I think the mail is also um, the same. That vice-like grip that Murdoch had on the um, on the political system in the UK seems to have loosened, I would yeah. say, quite considerably.
1: Tell me, I think as a freelancer, you can tell where the money is because that's where you get paid. Where, where, where do you think he's growing?
4: Well, as a feature writer, the Mail, because they're the only ones who are investing. Yeah. I mean, I would be paid three times more for a feature that I wrote for the Mail than I would be for the for the Telegraph or the Guardian. So that means that we can sort of spend more time on features. I mean, the Mail is very much a features paper, which is a point that Paul Dacre used to make. I think there was a lot of turning away from the mail when there was too much Brexit by, by the women readers and then we are there to sort of cre- create the calming effect, the counterbalance, the distraction. You know, I was the uh, Women's Editor of the Mirror post 9-11 and coming up to Brexit again, you know, post 9-11 our job was not to kind of talk about 9-11 but to kind of show that life goes on, that, you know, that it's not all over, that you know, there's a calming effect. And that—that that, that is what we see as our role, really. I mean, I, I wrote uh, 200 published articles or features last year, and I only mentioned Brexit once. Yeah. So yeah. I think that puts in context that you know <laughs> that there is plenty of stuff to be said.
3: Everyone thinks that the BBC doesn't have any of these problems with you know um, money and and all that kind of stuff. But um, the problem we have is that you know and this is a stat we always use that on Radio 4, for example, we, we lose 7,000 listeners a month to death. Um, they just die. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this ghastly, um... It's
0: not related to actually <laughs> listening to the programme, <laughs> <though>, is it? <laughs> then
3: they it. But there's this ghastly BBC term called replenishers. And the problem is, is that we lose kids at CBBS and we, ne- we just don't get them back anymore. And you know, people are not in the BBC habit. And that you will find that there is incredible furrowing of brows and a lot of sweat in the corner offices about how we... Introduce people, and so you know you have got Kamal Ahmed, who's our new editorial director, and you know job number one, and it's affecting how we tell our stories. Is we've got to you know get younger people involved, and also, you know, if if I did a thing about Jaguar Land Rover, usually you'd have a production line, then you'd have a bit of sync from a guy, and then you'd have a piece of camera saying, well, this is what's going on, and then you have another bit, another. That that's what we're trying to sort of say, you know, find the local woman who or man who runs a calf. Who have seen a tail off in what you know it's it's yeah. it's people-led and bring that, it back to is, the people and it's really yeah. changing the way we're trying to tell our stories yeah. i think it's and belting case studies as well yeah. rather than is what we're after in terms of stories the other
0: thing that I flag up is is which is for the first time about five years too late coming onto the mainstream media radar is gaming which people are starting to work out well if young consumers particularly male consumers are spending that much time gaming. I think the average is now about sort of six, you know, 16 hours a week for a 14-year-old boy. And I can you know, testify to that, that that is, as, the, as Netflix say, that their challenges are, their competitors are, sleep and gaming. Mm-hmm. Now, there is something in there which no one has quite worked out yet in the advertising and uh, journalism space about how do you then reach them within gaming and I think people are starting to experiment, particularly in in the US, with how you might talk to them offline. You see um, AOC, the great celebrity, left-wing, new presence in American politics. One of the first things she did last week was to go into one of those online discussion forums and just pop up and start to talk about gaming and
1: politics and I think you'll see more and more of that. Now, one of the surprises that I noticed, and I wonder what you think about guys, is um, Radio. So Chris Evans has moved over to Virgin News and now putting a lot of money into into radio because all of a sudden there's advertising revenue that I think they weren't expecting. Simon Mayo is going to a new classical channel. Do you think that's a long-term thing or is it just that they've been amazed that advertisers are quite happy to reach that stable audience?
0: No, I think it is. A, it's, it's part of that pattern which is that in print terms or or sort of old print publisher terms anyone who's sensible now models everything on the basis of zero <coughs> advertising, so a business like the, the Economist understands that advertising in the traditional economist way is gone, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: and anything that turns up is a bonus, however outdoor and radio, and radio merging with podcasts and stuff on the move is potentially hugely attractive. I mean, you, the listener numbers are, are brilliant, people like engaging with it, and there is an advertising
1: market there. Simon, picking up the point that you you alluded to about you looking for really, really good case studies, where will you expect to be filming wearing a high-vis jacket on, on the 1st of April, post-Brexit?
3: I'll probably be in a crate of tomatoes on my way from Spain. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be, be the obvious place to go. I think, you know, I, I think I'll be on the M20 somewhere, I imagine, with, with, along with 1,500 trucks, uh, let, you know, uh, if all goes uh, not according to plan, um, and it'll be sort of, you know, immersive, you know, trying to be, uh, but again, with, the, with, with people. I, I think one of the problems we've had over the last, on the Brexit story, is that the way the BBC works at the moment, is basically the 6 and 10 o'clock news will ring the Millbank and say, what's go- is, what's going on? And Millbank says, oh, it's chaos here. Great, let's make it the lead. Come what may, it's a way to turn our audiences off in a big way. I don't think we want to do the Punch and Judy politics, the Westminster stuff, people walking into number 10, walking out again. It doesn't make very good TV yeah. and it doesn't actually help the audience very much.
1: It's one of one of the big business stories that we've seen develop really since before Christmas has been the decline and the rapid changes in the high street. So Suspensers, Debenhams, Sports Direct, that kind of thing. So, um, Tana, that's actually something that has quite a big impact on people's lives because they're seeing the kind of the world suddenly mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. From a features perspective, how do you try and get a... sort of How are you pitching ideas about that?
4: I see my role as a features writer to be kind of um, grabbing the zeitgeist and bringing it down to earth and crystallising it. So I know it's a great features idea if it's something I can't quite get out of my mind or... You know, I have to write it down. I have to, I know it's going to kind of you know really trigger that interest it's, people are going to recognize it so I mean I, I think our job now I mean brexit has been really theoretical so far so my job as a feature writer now is to sort of interpret it in the way it's affecting real life real women's lives so we've already got shortages of nappies I mean in terms of the high street I think a lot of women don't want to see that, that dissolve I think they're seeing a lot of flux around them I mean I think we're also behind s if you look at the way the male has, has supported it and and wants it to kind of to keep going
1: so why was the Greg's vegan sausage roll? a big story for the start of the year. Well, it's
4: very interesting because I'm actually a vegan, so okay. I mean, it, it, it alternatively kind of exasperated meat eaters. It absolutely brought out the, 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 the angry white meat eater, but it also it kind of was a way to kick uh, millennials. It was—it was so much in it, you know.
1: I've got a real picture of the angry white meat eater. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think
4: it's P- Piers, Morgan. Piers Morgan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um,
1: so, but Simon, that's a quite a good example of a company just being a bit disruptive. I mean, if you strip it back, it's a product innovation story. How do you change to consumer demand that kind of thing?
3: Greg's, by the way, um, is a hell of a business. You know, people forget just how ubiquitous it is. You you think about pasty tax when it came back to the Osborne thing. So anything that, you know, grabs people like that, the idea of a pasty tax that took off vegan sausage roll. I haven't tried one. Have you tried one?
4: Uh, no, I haven't. But I mean, I think obviously, there's, a really, there's a real schizophrenic attitude to it because there's a of actual national newspaper editors who clearly hate it, but yet they want to engage with it because it's very millennial and it's trendy. Yeah. So it's very, I mean, the most brilliant moment PR-wise of this year has been, oh, Mr. Morgan, we've been expecting you. I mean, it was just perfect. That's the
1: instant tweet yeah, that, it that was, it was put just put out. Yeah. Yeah. Pippa, from a, a tabloid perspective, mm. um, what makes a news editor bite? <coughs>
2: you know, we sort of fall into this trap of thinking, well, it's all about Brexit every single day, whereas actually it's not. If you just look at this morning's front pages, for example, it's not sort of the wranglings of what's going on at Westminster. And I think the difficulty is for us, or the challenge, if you like, for us is getting that balance right and recognising that while there are days where actually it's fine to put the drama of the Commons on the front page, then there are other days where actually, while that's important to cover properly and to make sure it's informative, there are other issues which people want to know about and need
1: to know about. Simon, one of the stories that struck me this week was the letter that was written by (coughs) most of the big FMCG or food producers talking about food food production. Now, you touched before on Greggs and the pasty tax. It often makes quite a big splash, doesn't it, when big companies suddenly actually talk about politics in a way that impacts upon, upon the audience.
3: The, the, the food retailers are, are the group that we've been waiting for for a long time to say something mm. because they've been incredibly reluctant to do it. They've got millions of customers, 52% of them probably voted to leave the EU. So none of them have wanted to be naysayers or, or doom mongers about this. So I wrote a piece about how the Brexit threatened the, the, the sandwich <clears throat> and I was derided and ridiculed for it um, earlier in the year. But in fact, you know, your BLT becoming just a bee, um because there are no um, it's actually um, was actually actually hits home so i think that yeah you know I, I pity anyone who had to sort of try and explain the malt house compromise or, you know, i thought that the dominic grieve amendment was going to be a prog rock band one day um, yeah. <laughs> one of the problems we have is that if i put on the boss of jaguar land rover to say we've got a problem with this we rely on just-in-time parts Who's going to be the other voice in that? Is it going to be Bernard Jenkin? I mean, does he know anything about car manufacturing?
1: Yeah. The, pro- the problem of
2: the Johnson says he does, doesn't he? Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> so,
3: Marc
1: Francois knows more about Airbus than Airbus, so... Well, yeah.
3: well quite. I mean, so... The, as, uh, from when you're putting a business package together and you've got the, the, you know, the editor of the 10 saying, where's the balance? I said, where am I going to get it from? I'm not putting Bernard Jenkin in as a counterweight yeah. to the boss of Jaguar Land Rover.
1: The old maxim was, educate, entertain and inform. How do you entertain on Brexit?
0: It, it's, it's serious, but it is, the story itself is, you've got to have a heart of stone to not find it entertaining. I mean, it is, it is fascinating also for audiences outside the UK. Uh, I mean, it's niche, but it is, you know, a friend of mine in Sweden, Texted me the other night. Say I'm watching the Parliament Channel. This is insane. This well, is fantastic. They're
2: laughing at us, though, aren't
0: no, they? <laughs> no, no a friend. Well, a friend of mine in America, when I was uh, there before New Year, said, "Well, look, because we now know that there can never be a third series of faulty towers. This is the next best thing." <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: Do we definitely so, have some yes, Minister moments. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. It's, it's quite a, quite often that we. Uh, you know, sit there in the commons and go, or oh, the thick of it. I mean, there's, it's, it's the thick of it coming true, really,
1: yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
3: yeah. You get John Burko's quite a figure, of, you know, you can make you get, get some laughs yeah.
1: out of him. Yeah. So, Tanith, if you're trying to sort of provide a counterpoint to that, and you said that you've been you've been writing a lot about what psychologists were thinking, psychological well-being, that yes. sort of thing. Is is there more of a? Are you getting more commissions for those sorts of stories?
4: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, well-being. I mean, everybody just sees everything falling apart. They see their children falling apart. They, saw, they see their country falling apart. They just really want to understand what's going on. And I think there's so much more on brain science that we can now apply. And and you know, obviously, I mean, Trump has, has, has triggered a great sort of interest in sort of you know, sort of narcissistic personality disorders, and you know. There's discussion of sociopathy and, you know, why are we in this mess? You know, it's, it's going to a really big picture, but then also at a deeper level. So right. I, I see my role as just trying to sort of soothe and distract and promote balance. some sort of understanding, balance, because yeah. no-one's going to buy a paper that's just Brexit, Brexit, yeah, Brexit. Yeah, yeah.
1: So Sophie Ridge, the um, the Sky political uh, presenter, writes a column in The Metro. and yeah. She wrote a column where she said that She felt the next election would be determined not by Brexit, but by bus cuts. Normal people are looking for stories that explain about how their physical life in front of them is changing. So if you can no longer get get a bus to your local village or whatever, therefore that makes you think that the political system has failed. But also the the, the economic system. And there seems to be BuzzFeed doing more kind of long-form reporting about the impacts on local levels. As local newspapers get hollowed out... Is that gap being filled in different ways, Ian? Uh,
0: No, it's not. Some people are trying. The UK is always going to be London-centric because it's an extraordinary global city. Mm. But in terms of the the preoccupations of the media and how we see the world, uh, I think Simon makes a very good point about what's really going on out there. and I think there's going to have to be a rebalancing. I don't know economically quite how it happens, other than certain news organisations just deciding to send uh, or place people there. But I mean, part of it is the disintegration of the old ad model, yeah. Which and a whole network. It's not just that local newspapers went; it's that around the local and regional newspapers were agencies that fed uh, Fleet Street when something interesting was happening, but meant they always had people on the ground. So if you look at how courts were covered and how local government was covered, didn't always work, as you see in uh, somewhere like uh, Rochdale, but there was this vast of ecosystem. And as local papers have gone, a lot of the agencies have gone, and it leaves you, if you're not careful with in London, just something which is very London-focused, with too few people leaving leaving the office I don't I don't really have the answer so to it, other than people just going paper, there and telling stories uh, no, because thing of you your... didn't
2: mention is was the BBC is the BBC and that's been I mean almost through no fault of its own rightly the BBC is responsibility to cover local news but the problem the, the sort of like the flip side of that is that local papers have ended up being pushed out the market almost not which are under huge financial pressure anyway suffering even more because the BBC with its massive resources come in.
3: I, I hear what you're saying about the uh, BBC local radio stations, but I think that the local newspapers would have gone anyway, given what's yeah, happened to advertising, and so actually, if it wasn't for the BBC local radio, th- those communities would be even worse served than they are now. Mm-hmm. So I know there was a, you know, there is a, a beef about the BBC and, in the regions and the, and the power it has, but I wonder whether, if it weren't for that, what would be in its right. place?
1: Okay, I'm just gonna see if there's any questions on the floor, I can see someone raising their hand here.
2: Hi, Um, I think, you know, a
4: lot of people in this room are comms and marketing people and have brands and businesses to do a job for. At the minute, a lot of the news is obviously taken up by Brexit, but what do you, do you think that's going to change once we've come to a decision or what have you, once there's some, if there's more certainty? But from, certainly from more of a consumer perspective, it's really hard to land sort of stories for brands and what have you. Do you think that once we've come to any sort of decision that that might change from a, across the landscape for our clients, I guess? Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, I feel your pain because I've got two books out at the moment and I can't get any traction with anything. No, like, no one seems to be kind of able to kind of focus on anything. I mean, I think these are just unprecedented times. And I think as soon as March is over, I just think we're going to have to kind of be really reactive. I mean, one thing, like we we're talking about features and news and everything's moving so fast, we have to grab the idea and we have to write it Really, really quickly, because the time passes, and that—that's something I'm finding quite tricky as a feature writer and probably uh, for marketing and, and brands people as well.
3: Yeah, I think that goes for not just for consumer brands. I think it goes for everyone who's trying to tell any other story at the moment. The bandwidth is just not there at the mm. moment, and uh, you know, um, I, you know, going back to the early thing about sort of sending uh, in ideas for stories. You know, things like you know, we've got a great cryptocurrency story. That's going straight in the yeah, just don't bother.
2: I'm afraid I don't think that when we get to March 29th it's suddenly going to dramatically change, even if we do leave, because then we're in the next stage, we've got two years of flashing out our future relationship. Yeah. so the Brexit will continue. But... Um, there's definitely an appetite for people like me. I'm sure we'd all, all be the same. If somebody came to us with something great that wasn't Brexit, we would be absolutely biting your hand off. In fact, campaign stuff's really good. The mirror just, I think, we've got 14 campaigns running at the moment, and everything from the high street to... I mean, the big success of last year was Max's Law, which was basically the organ donation changes that the government had announced, and, and, you know, it was a real sort of people feel very strongly about, but also there's some... You were talking about case studies earlier, some really powerful images and case studies of children um, whose lives are saved. And, you know, it's... While there's tragedy there, there's also really good feel-good stories there too. So, I think campaigns um, for papers in particular can work really well, and they can be upbeat and non-Brexit.
0: We're in a highly unusual Mm. phase for the next 10 weeks or so, if there is a resolution. And at the moment, it's... As a story, it's seeping into every other area. Every other area, someone will say, well, what's the Brexit context, whether it's property or, um, or lifestyle and stress or sport, even the you know, sort of football yeah. transfer market, everything has a Brexit angle. There's gonna be a lot more stuff about Brexit, about the future, relationship. The argument is going to go on for years but it won't then
1: become all-consuming. Yeah. In so is terms. that why the the Duke of Edinburgh has a minor car crash and basically the BBC <laughs> <laughs> clears the schedule, Simon? Oh,
3: That's not my decision.
1: Right.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> right.
1: I want to move on to um, any another question. I think the gentleman here had his hand up.
0: Yes. Can, uh, do you think the future of... Uh, news outlets is going to be about creating their own stories rather than reporting them. You talked about campaigns. Do you mm-hmm. think that's the way in which uh, your outlets are going to be able to generate some interest in the future?
2: I mean, that's how. That's what journalism should be about. I mean, the fact that we're reporting, we're, we're quite sort of... Um reactive at the moment because events are so in politics anyway this you know events are big lots <coughs> is happening so there's responsibility on, on us to do that but yeah i mean i think any journalist any editor would much prefer it the other way around so, so
1: yeah Ian, the, it's the, the same who, for you
0: yeah the people who are going to be successful in this new world it, it, are going to be distinctive hmm. which is exactly the, the point you're making you're going to have to look for ways to be Distinctive and to surprise people. There's also the reality of what social media does to the news cycle, Just in terms of this excessive speed. I mean, sometimes stories don't even make it beyond the end of the, end of the Today program. You know, what seem like major rows are talked up as a yeah. ma- major thing. It, it's
1: so there's um, a there's a point there, isn't there? That um, you all work for some of the most recognizable brands in the country, our biggest news brands. So. So does that mean that it's? In, I think to, to follow on from that question, that those brands being, need to actually keep reinforcing what they mean to their readers, there's been an, or their or their viewers or their listeners. There's been an argument that the sun perhaps is not the strong brand it used to be.
3: Oh, I mean, you know, we we, we have to try and reinvent the brand and explain from first because for a new generation who are watching YouTube and Netflix and gaming. Um, we have to try and reinforce that brand in, in, in younger audiences' mind from scratch. Yeah. Um, so we've got to do that all over again, and I think that's our biggest... Our biggest problem and uh, you know that that is the thing that is occupying a lot of people just on on the on, on that <laughs> question I think what we've done is we've sort of set out themes that we think are important and just to let you know what those are things like the future of the high street and housing yeah uh, you know, will the retail crisis actually help solve the housing crisis as, as the shape of our towns and cities changes um, the other one is the world of work um, what's happening to employment rights, um, things like, you know, these uh, gig economy, the Matthew Taylor report about what work means to people, giving them dignity and progress and a decent standard of life and some protection uh, in, a, in a platform economy. So these there's some of the kind of issues that we are, uh, are, are focused on. So if you've got stories which land in that sort of area, I think you'll
1: find a pretty receptive right. audience where we are. So one of the, speaking of news brands, uh, the biggest news brands that aren't here obviously, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, the, the, the appointment of Nick Clegg as VP communications for Facebook, and Tanith, do you, do, you, do you get the impression that these organizations are actually starting to admit that they are publishers and not just algorithms?
4: Um, actually, one of the most infuriating interviews I had over the last year was um, a chat with a, the press officer or the press brokers for YouTube. And I'd spent two days for the mail watching um, suicide videos, self-harm videos, videos of girls telling how to hide self-harm, um, and it, it, was just, it was horrendous. And I spent probably half an hour asking her how many moderators that they had, and she repeatedly refused to tell me. And I honestly have never been so angry as a parent, a journalist, or anything. And it's about time, and it's now it's coming home to Ruth, that so they had to take Responsibility for the immense power they have, yeah. and it's not—it's not enough to say, "Oh, it's freedom of speech." It's just not enough.
1: So, Simon Amal Rajan, your colleague, said he was quite surprised in his yeah. interview with Nick Clegg because yeah. Nick Clegg actually gave ground and admitted they needed it's, to. Well, more.
3: on a number of f- fronts. I, I, I was in Davos last week, and I went to this most drippingly Davos-type round roundtable uh, that you could possibly imagine. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg invited me to go along with Nick Clegg. David Miliband, the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, the head of the International Red Cross, uh, the head of Human Rights Watch, someone from some African NGO. It couldn't have been more Davos-like. And in that meeting, they said, we're trying to reach out. We want to talk about content. What should we be putting up? What should we be taking down? How should our algorithm be working? Well, I, you know, and Nick Clegg was chairing that meeting and I got the, it, I got the distinct impression that they, they were actually admitting this is very, very hard stuff to do in terms of, you know, um, Holocaust denying no, uh, Vladimir Putin, denying, you know, where does the algorithm sort of kick in? And they looked, at, you know, they, they wanted to have this conversation because I don't think they really knew how to get a grip on it. And I get a feeling that they will continue doing what they're doing, raking in billions of dollars, as we saw in their advertising numbers this morning, and they'll just apologise
1: every six months. Because everyone's yeah. going to keep using but, them, yeah. in.
0: But then they're... I mean, the numbers this morning are spectacular. Mm. I mean, this, they're running... It's a, a 49% operating margin. Yeah. I mean, it's, an, it's a licence to print money, as they used to say about, you know, the old ITV franchises in the olden days. I think, though, and they're... The the numbers in all other respects in terms of audience and stuff were really healthy, despite all the scandals last year. But but there, there, there are signs, and I think this is going to be a really interesting year. We've seen so much talk in recent years about governments taking action. But in the UK and in Brussels and in the US, you're starting to, coming down the line very soon, are the culminations of those efforts. So, for example, the the stuff that Ofcom recommended, that's coming through DCMS. We're going to see pretty soon, and we've seen that in the last few weeks, their response Mm. on self-harm. So, it's going to start to be turned into uh, regulation. We'll have to see how rigorous it is. And then the lesson that Facebook learns is that policing this stuff and being a publisher taking an interest in what actually appears on your platform is expensive. Of course there's a 49% operating margin if you just create a platform and let anyone say whatever they want. Um, The the cost comes in managing that, policing that. So
1: Pippa, just on that, what are the steps you go through from getting a story idea to getting it actually out there in terms of checks and counter checks?
2: Just over the course of the day, you have conversations with the news editor, you have later conferences and then when you've filed a story you uh whether it's online or off the paper it goes through um the the news desk the head of politics will have a look at it there's about three different desks of sub editors finally the back bench will sit there and put the page together there'll be lawyers overlooking i mean there's there's a huge number
1: last question i'm going to ask the panel to sort of go back to the theme that we we set for today about news to look forward to what are the the stories or the trends or the topics that you hope to see to be covering this year?
4: Well, it's not a great sales attractor, but I'd like to see more positive coverage of the environment. I think the Males um, Spring Clean campaign is great (laughs) because it helps people feel back in control and gives them hope. Um, Obviously, we've got the Royal Baby, and that's going to be a great uplift, and I think uh, hopefully that will you know, give the kind of morale boost that people need and the distraction and the calming and the life goes on yeah. You know, message that I think we just desperately need.
1: I sense, Simon, mean, that you may not be featuring the Royal Baby, but w- what about you? <laughs>
3: no, um, I, I'll go back to what I was saying. I think that the shape of our high streets, our towns and cities is going to be something to look at, obviously. And I think that people... It's very interesting, everyone who... I remember 10 years ago when Woolies went bust, all the people who uh, lamented its demise also admitted they hadn't been in it for a while. Mm. So I think that um, you know, people realise that they have some agency about yeah. which brands survive and which don't. So I think that housing and and the the shape of our towns and cities and I think it is interesting that we have the lowest unemployment we've had since 1975 and yet no one seems to be getting better off I think that living standards and the world of work uh, as I go back to the comments I made before
1: Okay, Ian.
0: Well I'm interested in a story that just really doesn't get covered at all, Brexit (laughs) um, so we've got Brexit to look forward to Uh, I'm feeling, I mean in terms of media I feel actually really after a long period of talking mainly about media decl- decline, I think interesting things are happening. OK. And uh, I think sort of particularly high-end <laughs> media is about is in the process of having a renaissance, so I'm feeling optimistic so more about media. So qual-
1: more readers of quality journalism and the sort of stuff you're trying to pull together? I think so, yeah. <laughs> OK. And Pippa?
2: Well, Italy, in the first instance, uh, we're going to see a... I'm not sure we'd call it an Ital exit. I think that's an really interesting story. Obviously, what happens in the States continues to amaze. Uh, is this going to be the year that, that we see the decline of Trump or not? Um, and some really interesting Democrat candidates rise, rising up there in a very sort of much more open space than they've had in the past yeah. for um, in terms of the Democrat nomination. And then domestically, I think I'm really interested in why the country voted for Brexit in the first place and what underneath it all were the reasons why people decided that they needed to have more control over their lives. They felt, le- they felt disenfranchised by the political system we have and they felt that their communities were being left behind or, or ignored. And that fits into some of the stuff we talked about about high streets, about housing, about life outside the Westminster bubble, and politics as it affects real people's lives. Yeah. And if I can do anything this year, it's going to be looking beyond Brexit to actually the causes and what and how you yeah. can sort of address those.
1: So one of the things we didn't have a chance to cover was, was, was Trump and America, so fake news indeed. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, guys, for, for joining us this morning. I hope that was interesting. I'd just like you to thank our panel, Tanith Carey, Simon Jack, Ian Martin and Pippa Burr. Thank you. You've been listening to On Message by MHP Communications. If you would like to see videos from today's event and find out more about other events hosted by MHP, please go to our website, mhpc.com. For now, thanks for listening.
0: message is written and produced by MHP Communications and Mixonics Audio Production. You can find out more on our website, mhpc.com. And you can find us on Twitter, at MHPC.